So go for the interview part. That's great. Happy to be here. All right. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. And so usually the question we ask is, what motivated you to become a scientist or how, how did it happen? Was it something like a childhood dream or was it something that came like an experience in life or that, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. It, it was a childhood dream, actually. Um, you know, I read um, the Golden Helix, uh, you know, Jim Watson's book about the discovery of DNA when I was a child. And, uh, you know, I had some other nerdy friends. So instead of playing uh, cowboys and Indians, we were playing like Watson and Crick, basically. <laughs> we were kids. We were dreaming of, uh, you know, being like them, discovering cool things and so on. And then... Um, <clears throat> When I was in high school, um, I grew up in Romania and Eastern Europe. And when I was in high school, um, I was in this high school that um, was sort of a special high school, a lot of mathematics, physics. I thought I was going to be a theoretical physicist because I wanted to figure out things and so on. And um, <clears throat> it dawned upon me that the human body is the most interesting object one could study, the most fascinating, you know, the one that's sort of uh, the internal ultimate frontier. So uh, I decided to go to med school instead, instead of going to, you know, to study physics. And um, <clears throat> after I finished med school, I wanted to become better trained as a researcher. So I moved first to Switzerland and then to California at Scripps, where I did my graduate work in cancer molecular genetics. Then I went back and got my finished my clinical training at uh, UC San Diego. Um, and I wanted to bring some of those things that we knew in cancer um, to, to the study of the brain. Cancer at that time, which was 25 years ago, was uh, not a mystery anymore. There were still a lot of details to be figured out, but we understood how, you know, oncogenes, tumor suppressor genes, what made, you know, cancer happen and so on. Whereas the mind was still something that was, you know, uh, a lot of blank territory, something that one could interesting, you know, could study for the next few decades and, and make an impact. So decided to focus on the brain, uh, got some training in neurobiology, did my clinical training in psychiatry, and then started a career as a physician scientist in, um, you know, studying the brain. And um, brought a lot of those things that were being used in cancer in terms of genomics, um, the idea of using uh, molecular approaches to precisely assess patients, match them to treatments, Try to bring that um, into psychiatry, and it's been a journey. It took uh, two decades for us to develop this uh, liquid biopsy approach for mental health that we're now, um, you know, able to to use actually with patients uh, that can assess for various uh, mental health diseases and dimensions. The most recent study was on anxiety the study that came out last week that you were mentioning, Katerina. And, um, you know, the reason why it took so long and it's been so arduous was, on the one hand, uh, you know, you can't biopsy the target organ in our case, right? So unlike in cancer where you can biopsy a tumor and then match that against the peripheral profile, the liquid biopsy profile, in, in the case of the brain, you can't biopsy the brain in live individuals. So we had to rely on a very careful stepwise approach to discover markers, candidate biomarkers to 
in in the periphery in the blood to then prioritize them um, to then validate them in independent cohorts of very clinically severe individuals and then finally to test them in additional clinical cohorts for clinical validity to see if we can predict who's ill and who will have future disease exacerbation hospitalizations and so on <clears throat> so we managed to do it uh, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation it hasn't been easy it's been a journey but i think uh you know these types of approaches will make life much better for patients will make much life easier for doctors and will bring psychiatry into the 21st century to be on par with other medical specialties and there's such a need for it i'm also a practicing psychiatrist i see patients and you know, uh, the current way of doing things is uh, sucks, basically. Yeah. So you're sort of relying on what the patient can recall, their subjective sort of perception, self-report on your perception of what they have. It's very important to bring quantitative tools to assess how they feel, how they think, to get lab tests, to put everything together to match them to the right treatment. So. That's what we did, and that's where where we're at with things. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really wonderful. It's a it's a wonderful life story, but and also um, the that you had the thought of why can't we have the same kind of precision from from cancer for mental health? I think there are still a lot of misconceptions and a lot of people that. The, the mind is something kind of, I don't know, metaphysical, you know, not something you can pinpoint with blood tests or anything. I think, do you think that this type of misconception was hindering the field for a long time? You know, well, when... I mean, it, uh, the, not, not only sort of it, uh, you know, our approach can demystify things, and but it also removes... Um, a lot of the stigma and fear and uncertainty that patients have. <clears throat> and uh, I think just showing that, you know, it's another biological disorder. There are biological abnormalities that you can identify, treat, um, monitor for um, is very helpful to the patients. They, a lot of them tell me, I, you know, I'm so relieved. It's not just something, you know, that I'm imagining and that's, it's not just a weakness there's something there just like in diabetes that can be detected and that we can um, treat for in a more precise way and can, we can um, monitor for how well the treatment is working and prevent future relapses so it makes uh, things as you say you know it demystifies them but also reduces this uh, stigma and uncertainty that patients are facing Yes, it's it's so important. So thank you for that, um, you know, pre-introduction. And yeah, the stage is yours, everyone. The slides are pinned on top of the room. Feel free to access them. And yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. So the first slide actually shows sort of the practical outcome of all this work. We uh, managed to um, get some of these findings out of the academic uh, environment out of the ivory tower and in, into a form that's um, usable by doctors and patients by doing a startup company called Mindex Sciences. Um, second slide, please. <clears throat> 
so uh, we started, as I mentioned, on this journey 20 years ago. We didn't know it was going to be this hard and take this this long, but uh, you know that's what you have to do to make sure that what you discovered is real, that it's reproducible, that it has predictive ability, clinical utility, and so on. And uh, <clears throat> um, next slide, please. <clears throat> so my, my research groups, my academic research groups, uh, um, you know, we, we named our laboratory from the beginning uh, neurophenomics as opposed to neurogenomics. We wanted to pay attention to the phenotype as well, to phenomics, not just to the genomics part of things. I'm a geneticist by training, and obviously that's important, but being very careful what kind of animal models you use and what kind of uh, ways of assessing people you use as part of your genomic study is as important as the genomic uh, work that you do downstream of that. So we took a translational approach from the beginning. We did human studies, we did animal model studies, we integrated them, and that led to um, you know, our ability to progress and to um, you know, understand things better, um, develop some things that are practically useful, and uh, try to educate the field about um, how to do things in a more precise way. Um, next slide, please. <clears throat> so when, when we started on this journey, um, you know, psychiatry is sort of codified in terms of diagnosis and something called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And that's something that's, um, you know, like a phone book basically and has hundreds of diagnoses inside and so on. The reality is a little bit you know, at least in my mind, is more simple. You have these. Are you guys seeing the slide with the Venn diagrams? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you have these three broad domains. You know, the anxiety domain, the mood domain, the cognitive domain, and stress is a major trigger of these disorders. So over the years, we set out to systematically map the genomic landscape of uh, these disorders in an empirical non-hypothesis-driven fashion so that we can understand the territory and then use that in a practical way. Uh, next slide, please. <clears throat> so over the years, we've published studies on uh, all these domains. We've mapped the territory. Um, we need to add here on the slide the, um, slide the recent study that came out last week on anxiety. Basically, uh, it was a sort of a very systematic approach from the beginning to map the genomic landscape of these domains. Um, and uh, stress and pain are, are triggers of the uh, compensation in terms of mental health. Uh, you get worse anxiety with depression, sometimes dissociation and psychosis when you're under stress or under severe pain. We've looked also at alcoholism, which is a very common um, you know, addiction. And uh, the fact that it overlaps those three domains is, you know, um, actually an empirical accurate description. Some of the genes involved in alcoholism also are involved in anxiety disorders, some in mood disorders, and some in schizophrenia. So as, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> as I sometimes say, you know, some people drink to be calm, you know, so that's the overlap with anxiety. Some people drink to be happy. That's the overlap with depression and some people need to be drink to be drunk to dissociate and that's the overlap with schizophrenia and 
you know, we all have <clears throat> seen or have you know, friends, colleagues, family members who sometimes succumb to one or the other of these, uh, <clears throat> you know, routes. Um, and <clears throat> next slide, please. <clears throat> so, so in order to do this, um, you know, I moved from um, California to Indiana in 2004, uh, got recruited here as a young assistant professor, uh, and I had a lot of funding for long-term genomic studies. Uh, it's a great place to work, nice people, very well trained, and also a very stable population. Uh, so we wanted to build a kind of a population study uh, that uh, <clears throat> has people that are followed over time, tested uh, in the lab or in the hospital when they get hospitalized, blood samples collected, uh, neuropsychological testing done, electronic medical records, and uh, doing sort of genomics on them as well as phenomics, developing in new instruments to assess them, apps, etc. So we started this cohort uh, almost 20 years ago now, and at this point uh, we have over uh, 1,200 actually enrolled in it, over 500 people that have over 1,200 testing visits in it. We've sequenced uh, more recently uh, our, uh, over 1,000 uh, of their genomes. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it's been a very productive uh, and very rich sample, but it takes work. It's sort of like a mini Framingham project, like that project that they had for cardiovascular diseases for decades in New England, where they followed people over years to derive insights about risk factors for cardiovascular disorders, cholesterol, and so on. We wanted to do something similar for mental health. So we put in the time and the effort long-term to follow people over time, get multiple data points on them, multiple visits and so on. Uh, next slide, please. So we, we were able to, I think, to be successful because we we had, you know, six innovations or, or things that we, we brought uh, forward that were useful, turned out to be very useful. So number one, I already mentioned, you know, learn from cancer, don't reinvent the wheel. So cancer has done a lot of work in terms of genomics, in terms of precision medicine. So over the years, we tried to adopt some of the same approaches and platforms. And as I mentioned, that was my previous field. I did my graduate work in, at Scripps in Cancer Molecular Genetics. The second thing was this concept of convergence that we developed. We... Um, <clears throat> We relied on convergence of multiple lines of evidence for identifying genes, biomarkers for pursuing them. We didn't rely on a single approach. So we had convergence between animal and human studies, convergence between multiple independent studies, and so on. So we call that approach convergent functional genomics. We, And I'll discuss it a bit more later. We also, um, you know, we're very point out, you know, the third innovation was phenomics. We were very quantitative and deliberate about how we assess phenotype. We developed our own visual analog scales to measure how people feel and think at that moment in time. Didn't rely on the classical questionnaires available in psychiatry, which are a bit of a hodgepodge of things. Uh, number four is we were highly translationals. We did, uh, you know, a variety of translations from 
bench to bedside, from blood to brain, animals to humans, and so on. Um, number five is we um, took this very deliberate four-step approach to make sure that we discover, replicate, validate test biomarkers. We didn't rely just on a single step and p-values, you know, statistical significance, etc. We wanted replication as the key gold standard. And then um, in the end, you'll see how that all comes together into what we call the, the three circles of um, <coughs> mental health. Next slide, please. So, you know, when we started on this journey, this was a cover in, in science. Uh, cancer treatment gets personal. And that was, you know, uh, 2006. Cancer was way ahead of psychiatry. And we were just getting started to try to develop similar approaches. I think now, you know, after years of hard work, we can say that psychiatric treatment can get personal. So as a field, we've made it there. We caught up. <clears throat> um, next slide, please. And, you know, in terms of phenomics, um, we remember those three Venn diagrams where you have, you know, anxiety, mood, and cognition. We think most people should be sort of, uh, all people should actually be, uh, assessed and followed in a multi-dimensional space, not try to collapse them into a single dimension and say you have an anxiety disorder, you have a mood disorder, you have a schizophrenia. You ha Most people have actually, you know, function and have abnormalities on all three dimensions. Um, so right now at this moment in time, if we assessed for each of you, your anxiety, your mood, your cognition, we can plot you in this three-dimensional mental landscape, mindscape as we call it, with your XYZ coordinate on these three dimensions. And over time, if we repeated those measures, you would be a cloud, your own personal cloud. Uh, and I think that's sort of a better way to describe people than trying to fit them into one dimension and into a DSM label. And most patients in clinical practice actually carry multiple diagnoses, which sort of reflects this fact that the doctor intuitively senses that they have multiple things going on with them. They just don't have the vision and the nomenclature to describe all those things. So then they stick multiple label on a patient, multiple diagnostic labels. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so, um, you know, most patients are like a Rubik's Cube, a little bit uh, scrambled and uh, three-dimensional. And we think that with some of these precision tools that we're bringing to the table, we'll be able to have them all sorted out. So that's uh, a cartoon from The New Yorker. <clears throat> all right, so, so blood biomarkers, which is what we're talking about today, are... <clears throat> um, something that's you know very usable practical in psychiatry they are easily accessible it's just a blood draw as opposed to brain imaging which is you know more expensive more difficult to do can't do it sort of in any clinic uh, anywhere in the field you know i have to go be in a specialized imaging center um or even you know uh, cerebrospinal fluid, spinal taps, uh, you know, patients aren't super enthusiastic about getting a spinal tap, whereas a blood draw can be done in any setting, primary care and so on. And uh, if you have uh, good blood tests, markers that can, be, uh, you know, be used to assess and monitor people, then 
uh, you're in, you're in a, you're basically um, you know being able to deploy this everywhere, and that's the goal to make this part of routine care, routine primary care, not just specialized <clears throat> high-end care in uh, academic centers. So we, we wanted from the beginning to see if we can discover blood biomarkers that could be used anywhere. Now that <clears throat> the, so why would, we, why, why would there be biomarkers in the blood that uh, track or reflect what's happening in the brain? Well, you know, <clears throat> one of the reasons is that the nervous and immune system are um, very interconnected during development and also uh, you know, afterwards, um, you know, all the way to adulthood, all the way to, you know, through your lifespan, there are strong bidirectional brain immune interactions. The function of the brain affects the immune system, the immune system, cytokines, and so on affect the function of the brain. So you can pick up a peripheral signature that is reflective of um, um, brain activity. And uh, there are similar gene expression changes in brain cells, in blood cells, due to you know, having similar genes or promoters of genes and responding with gene expression in similar ways to the shared internal milieu or external environmental changes like medications and so on. So it's possible to find biomarkers, but it's like needle in the haystack. So we had to have a very careful approach to find true signal that's reproducible and reflective of what's happening in the brain. Next slide, please. <clears throat> if you found them, however, they're very useful. So they can be used for diagnostics, they can be used to guide treatments or therapeutics, and also to discover new drugs. And uh, last but not least, they can be used to understand the biology of the disorder. Next slide, please. So these are the four steps that I mentioned for biomarker discovery we wanted to have sort of a comprehensive gold standard approach to discover biomarkers to with these four steps discovery prioritization validation and testing um, our discovery is done as opposed to using large cohorts of so-called patients and so-called controls we focused on people who have a disorder and follow them longitudinally over many years to see what changes when they are sick and when they're not. It's a sort of a, a within subject design. It's very powerful, very hard to do. So <clears throat> when we were starting this at about the same time, Mike Snyder at Stanford published a beautiful independently did a similar study uh, with a within subject design. Somebody followed over a year with an N of one beautiful paper. He published it in Cell. He was the N of one. He, he did it on himself. You know, he, he took samples of himself over a year and did the multi-omic studies and showed that it's very informative to, to catch and predict future um, health outcomes. Our, co our discovery cohorts have many, multiple mini Mike Snyders inside them, as people who we follow on tutorial over time. And, uh, and then, you know, rely, once you have some candidate biomarkers, rely on multiple lines of evidence for cross-validating them, for then assess reproducibility, test them in independent cohorts, and so on. 
So, you know, uh, next slide, please. So nowadays, uh, some of those tests that we've developed and published are now available to doctors through the Startup Mindex Sciences. And, um, you know, people always ask how accurate these tests are. Well, they're more accurate than nothing, right? Right now in clinical practice, we use nothing, uh, routine clinical practice. Uh, but, you know, conservatively speaking, most people that we've tested with these different tests, um, they're at over 70%. So in, in three out of four people, you can classify them correctly. And that's in all comers. Uh, our digital tests are, are even more precise than the molecular tests, uh, but, you know, they're not always objective. You have to rely on what the patient is telling you. Uh, and <clears throat> the molecular tests, when you test them in high-risk groups, um, they are over 90% accurate. Um, and when you combine the molecular testing and the phenomic testing but with digital instruments you get uh, very good predictive accuracy that's comparable to anything else out there in medicine so the the end sort of products that are available now are an app that assesses the phenomic part and a blood test that can be provide reports on different these disease indications and when you combine them you can have very good uh, predictive accuracy so here in the slide, next slide, please. We illustrate that for suicide, which is a you know very tough problem in psychiatry. We lose a lot of patients to suicide in society in general. We lose a lot of patients. We lose a lot of people to this sort of needless tragedies. So over the last decade, we developed blood tests, biomarkers for suicide. Um, we <clears throat> published them. <clears throat> So sort of funny fact for, for those of you who are professional scientists, our first study in 2013, we were so enthused about our breakthrough that we submitted it to Nature. First, it got triaged, not even sent for review. Then we submitted it to Science, it got triaged, not sent for review. Then we uh, published it in Molecular Psychiatry, which is a very good specialty journal, a Nature journal in our field. So. When we after we published it, then Nature and Science each wrote like a two three page you know news and views commentary about the paper, uh, where you know they could have just sent for review in the first place. But yeah, you know. So for those of you who are young, it it does matter where you publish initially. Uh, in the long term, you know, uh, and for the sort of the field of science as a whole, what matters is that you do good work. A study, even if it's not published in one of these tablet journals, if it's a good study, will still stand the test of time, get highly cited, and so on. And conversely, you know, some of these uh, tabloid journals um, <clears throat> have papers that don't get reproduced because they people rush to publish or bias things so that they look more sensational and so on. So worry about doing good science, not necessarily about where you publish. Uh, good science will always get cited in the long run. And, and our work has started to be cited a lot and, and um, you know, written up like a New England Journal of Medicine Journal Watch, which is something that physicians read, which is important for, for us because we want people to know that these things are starting to be available and that there's hope for their patients. And here on the right-hand side, it, it shows, uh, you know, <clears throat> 
the area under the curve, uh, that sort of a measure of prediction, the higher the better, you know, um, area under the curve for receiver operating curve. So, um, you know, in a lot of the populations that we studied in all individuals or in people with uh, different um, psychiatric diagnosis, our suicide risk predictive score is uh, high and uh, highly significant. Those asterisks mean um, statistically significant one asterisk, two asterisks mean survived bond Ferrani correction for all the tests performed. So uh, it's it's possible we did it and uh, now it's available. <clears throat> Next slide, please. <clears throat> we also did similar work for pain, developing a blood test for pain, which is, pain is something very similar to a lot of the mental health disorders, you rely on a subjective self-report by the patient on your clinical impression uh, to make it to assess somebody. And then, uh, you know, there's the risk that you match them to the wrong medications or to addictive medications. And then you have the, you know, the opioid epidemic, right? So we developed a blood test for pain. We identified repurposed drugs that are non-addictive and that's been published. So it, you guys can look it up. <clears throat> And uh, one of the main, you know, <clears throat> actual utilities of our blood test, in my opinion, or the main one is actually not just assessing somebody in an objective way, but you can match people to medications based on their biomarker profile on existing medications. So that narrows the list of what choices doctors have. They can go more targeted. And also you can use the biomarker signature to identify existing drugs used for other disorders to repurpose them for treating your indication. And we show here an example for pain, how we identified certain existing drugs that could be repurposed for pain. Some of them are vitamins, you know, uh, so there's always, you know, signal from medications and nutraceuticals. And nutraceuticals are a very interesting and viable option for people to consider or add to their medication regimen. Next slide, please. We also did similar work for <clears throat> depression and bipolar disorders or so mood disorder tests that came out a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, um, it, it show, it, uh, the, the blood test can distinguish with if it's depression, just depression, or if it's manic depression, so-called bipolar disorder. It uncovered some of the biology of the disease, which is driven by circadian clocks. And uh, here on the right-hand side, we show how, you know, you can actually, on a patient, get like a score and uh, um, match them to nutraceuticals, to medications. So that's sort of like a prototype of a report for a doctor. Nowadays, over at the startup side, they do it much nicer than this. This was sort of academic work. Where... <clears throat> so I'd, I'd like to acknowledge, you know, the my research groups at the... IU Medical School at the VA Medical Center that uh, contributed to these studies over the years. We have great teams over here. We have we work hard and have fun. Um, and um, I'll, I'll spend uh, five, ten more minutes telling you a little bit about the practical outcome of these things. So <clears throat> next slide, please. Slide 20. So about four years ago, uh, you know, before we, we did anything in terms of spin-out startups and so on, there was this case that really um, sort of affected us uh, as a group and in particular sort of was a kind of an awakening for me, which was 
we had a patient that uh, after finishing our suicide biomarker studies a, a year later after that we learned that she died by suicide and <clears throat> we went back and looked at you know when you do research all data is aggregated in cohorts you identified you don't communicate with the doctors of those people also. so we went back and looked at her data and she was at uh, the arrow here points to her. She was an outlier. She was at the 100 percentile of the blood biomarker panel, at the 100 percentile of the suicide assessment uh, scale that we developed. Um, she was very high risk, but because this was done in a research setting, there was no ability to provide feedback to her doctor, say, look, this patient is very high risk and, uh, you know, you need to pay extra attention to her and, uh, and uh, you know, consider these other medications that match her profile. There was none of that loop going back, but she was just a research participant. So it dawned on me that, you know, we publish all this, you know, we do all this work, we publish studies, there are press releases and so on, and then nothing happens. You know, people don't get to use them or get help. Every time we publish a paper, we'll get inundated with emails, calls from families, patients, and so on. They want to come to get tested. Now tell them, look, this uh, can't just come to my academic research lab and be tested. So we decided to to, to support uh, IU into us doing a spin-out company. Uh, next slide, please. And, you know, these disorders, mental health disorders, and suicide affect everybody. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor. Uh, any characteristic, they cut across sort of social demographic factors and current treatment is completely inadequate. So here uh, in this picture is actually a Silicon Valley executive who um, died by suicide and uh, her family is actually was uh, an, supportive and invested in the startup and uh, supported sort of the spin out of this technology. So it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you can have access to the best care at Stanford or wherever, and still, you know, you fall through the cracks with the current way of doing things. So, you know, I mentioned the three circles. So those are the three circles that <clears throat> should be used and that we developed in terms of product. So the outer layer, and that's the logo of Mindex Sciences, the startup company. The outer layer, the outer circle is digital. We assess how people feel and think and their history through an app. Uh, and that's, you know, what I do as a doctor or any other psychiatrist does with a patient. First, you see how you know you do an exam on them a mental status exam and see how they feel and think and you get the history so you get all that information the app just does it in a more in an easier more precise quantitative way so you can actually have numbers and graphs for everything the middle layer is molecular that's the blood testing uh, that we developed and the inside circle the hexagon is the pill is the pixel a tablet, right? So you go from assessing in a more precise way <clears throat> somebody's phenotype to lab tests to the right medication. And that's something that has occurred for many years in other areas of medicine, right? So you do an exam, you get the history, that's the outer layer, then you get labs, middle layer, and then you start them on a targeted treatment that's occurring uh, all the time in, pri in primary care. 
we brought that to psychiatry with our product. So the mission of Mindex is, and we've discussed some of this, you know, one in four people will suffer from some mental health problems in their lifetime. Pain also is a major issue and we want to help um, save and improve lives through a more precise 21st century approach. So for that, we developed this platform that goes from digital tests to molecular tests to targeted therapeutics and uh, a pipeline. So this is sort of the Mindex Science product pipeline. Um, the in the diseases that are highlighted in red, there are already blood tests that are being offered that can be ordered by physicians for their patients. We're also working, we haven't rolled out on a blood test for schizophrenia. And um, <clears throat> next slide, please, slide 25. Um, so this is how you know the process looks. You start with digital screening. Everybody should have this app on their phone. It's available in Apple Store, Google, uh, free trial. You, can, you guys can try it out. And uh, it's like a Fitbit for the mind. You get sort of nice quantitative measures of how you feel, how you think, the life activities that you do, uh, how they influence how you feel and think and so on. And it can gen it's, it's all confidential. It's all on the phone. The company doesn't collect any data. But you can export it and send us a, a nice report by email to your therapist, your doctor, coach, family member, friend, whoever you want. It's at your discretion. Um, and when you come to an appointment, you can bring you know these nice graphs and say over the last three months, instead of trying to remember how you felt, you know, you just show you know you know graphs for your mood, your anxiety, and so on. Extremely useful. Very simple concept, but it wasn't done before. Then we have uh, SX Prevent, which is a digital tool that we developed for kind of like a suicide credit risk report. Then we have the blood testing, and then we have the matching to medications and monitoring or respond to treatment. And all that it can is integrated in a dashboard for the doctors who order these tests so they can track their patients in there or it can be integrated in their electronic medical records. And uh, the approach can be used all the way from prevention, primary care prevention to treatment, um, all the way to treatment in specialized psychiatric settings. Next slide, please, slide 26. So the liquid Mindex liquid biopsy blood test um, out of a single tube, you can have reports for multiple disorders. It's all done with next generation sequencing now. The physician orders it, patient gets a kit, um, get, does a blood draw, and then um, <clears throat> samples come to our lab. And then um, two, three weeks later, the physician gets a report uh, with risk scores, current state, future risk, uh, match, best matches for nutraceutical, best matching for medic, existing medications, and so on. Next slide, please. So in the end, you know, we want to be able to provide dashboards for um, people to do a better job, uh, for doctors to do a better job with their patients, for pharma companies to do a better job in their clinical trials, for uh, organizations, HMOs, etc., payers, insurance companies to do a better job for their populations. And last but not least, for consumers to track their own health. I think the future is consumers taking more and more 
charge of their health and uh, being informed about things. And lastly, um, you know, by treating mental health, you can, in fact, improve your longevity. One of our discoveries was that <clears throat> some of the genes and biology that's involved in one direction in mental health disorders like depression, stress, suicide, is turned on in the opposite direction in longevity. So we call that the life switch. So by treating properly mental health, you actually flip the light switch, the life switch in the direction of longevity. So that's sort of uh, an additional benefit. You go from keeping people alive and happy to all the way to living longer. So next slide. So that's the story. And I have a few minutes for questions if you guys are interested. <clears throat> yeah, thank you so much for sharing this really extensive and wonderful work that will help a lot of people. Um, so um, this is really wonderful. Thank you and for doing the work. <laughs> my pleasure, my pleasure. And uh, I was, uh, the, my question, it was in the news very recently for postpartum depression and also psychosis. If, do you think there needs to be a very um, specific test or do you think the current biomarkers you have would reliably um, be able? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very, very good question. Uh, I think that's an area where um, a lot of tragedies are occurring unnecessarily. So first of all, um, postpartum, I think, uh, uh, you know, women need more support, uh, more attention, more close follow-up. And, um, you know, in the past, in traditional societies, you know, you were around family, friends, uh, you know, it takes a village, right? And, Nowadays, people are more isolated, spread out, and uh, uh, isolation for somebody who is undergoing, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of mental health challenges and stress and sleep deprivation is not good. So, so um, we think that using our app is a good way for women postpartum to keep track of how they feel and think, document that, and show that to their OBGYN, to their primary care doctor, and so on, which is very important to catch things and track them, quantify them. And we also think that <clears throat> our blood tests may be helpful. You know, we can uh, <clears throat> measure anxiety, we can measure depression. And as I said, we're working on a test for schizophrenia, which is psychosis. So uh, we can look at all three. And those are things that occur with those hormonal changes that occur postpartum. Increased anxiety, increased depression, increased psychosis and all the way to, you know, <clears throat> tragedies, uh, suicide or infanticide and things like that. Yeah, thank you. And then I have uh, one more question. We had the guest speaker here um, a while ago, and he showed the connection between pain perception and cancer um, severity um, and also treatment. Um, he showed that actually a change in pain sensitivity wasn't just you know the the, the outcome of cancer but um, actually um, was also the ca causal part of uh, changing the immune response to be weaker against the cancer Did, do you know about that and the connection that I think that would be also really interesting to use your 
um, methods and combine that with cancer. That uh, it was a connection between pain and cancer. Yes. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah that... I mean, pain. Uh, yeah, pain is. Uh, you know, I, I I don't doubt there's a bidirectional connection there, and uh, you know, uh, pain. Uh, you know, it's primarily an inflammatory process, which um, can be the result of sort of cancer growing and lesions, but also can make the cancer spread out more easily. So, you know, they feed on each other. Um, and um, certainly, you know, our, our pain test could be used to um, assess and treat people appropriately for cancer pain, um, as opposed to trying um, all sorts of... Uh, medications that might not fit the patient. Um, cancer pain can be extremely intense and uh, um, and it's a very interesting angle, the one that you mentioned, that's uh, if you mitigate the pain that might help reduce the or, or slow down the progression of cancer. And, um, you know, uh, I'll look up that work. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, just let me know, uh, Dr. Shah, and two more people just want to stage, but let me know when your time is up. So I will stop the, <laughs> the talk. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for your wonderful talk. I might have two questions. One of them, I just remember one of the slides, maybe it was number 15, that mm -hmm. uh, we had a p-value and that mm -hmm. was the differences between the male versus female. And that was just uh, kind of, you, you know, in, from the perspective of the quantity uh, yeah there was a lot a lot difference between the male and female yes somehow when we just move to the slide number 17 when you, you just compare the pharmacogenomics with each other yes. i was just wondering to ask you because for me for example some of the factors like a v gfa or some of the hla that we see in blue yeah that you demonstrate in the blue i was wondering is there any uh, correlation between them? And yes, yes, no, no, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a very interesting, uh, you know, uh, area to look at the, and uh, very important to, to actually look at gender differences. So, um, so three, three thoughts over there. So first of all, consistently, we are, we find better biomarkers, more predictive biomarkers with, in women than in men. So consistently, our ab ability to to track and predict uh, all these different mental health uh, indications and pain that we studied is better in women. And we don't know why that is. Could be a combination of two things. So first of all, um, a lot of these <clears throat> genes are detected in immune cells and um, the immune response is perhaps stronger in women. A lot of them are uh, X chromosome based and so on. And women have two X chromosome uh, and so that could be an explanation, but the other one is, is more, uh, pragmatic and methodological. So, uh, when we do these studies, this discovery, we have to, um, initially bootstrap the discovery of candid candidate biomarkers to how people feel and think to their self reports on our, on the instruments that we developed that are now in the app and women are much better at more accurate in terms of self reporting. I guess they're more in touch with their feelings. Uh, they don't minimize or hide them. You know, guys sometimes want to be macho and so on. So we think that there's, you know, the initial discovery is better in women. Also, when we use them for predicting in independent cohorts, again, you know, um, guys may not be as accurate in terms of describing their, their clinical severity, whereas women 
are more uh, upfront about that. So again, our biomarkers classify them better because their clinical uh, self-reporting is more accurate. So um, for those two reasons, I think, you know, the tests that we have so far are work better in women. So it's, you know, mind senses uh, is almost like, you know, should, I'm joking, but should be like a women's uh, health company. I should sort of market or, or uh, target these tests more to women. And that would be, you know, super important because in general, in the past, women have been understudied. Also, anxiety, depression, pain are twice more prevalent in women than men. And uh, we have better tests for women than men. So the, the tests, the panels that are being done can be done by gender. And that provides, you know, increased accuracy. And the female panel is always better than the male panel. Also, by considering inflammation, because you mentioned about the cytokines and all of those components yeah. and pro-inflammatory, I was just wondering to ask you, uh, for example, some of the condition like after surgery pain, they are yeah. totally different. Still, we have a systematic inflammation, but it might be different based upon the marker that you just introduced in a seven number 17 slide. And I was just wondering to ask you about uh, your point of view about that. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, pain is very heterogeneous. It's not a single disorder. None of these disorders are a single disorder. So I think using sort of a stratified approach and identifying subtypes, as we were able to do with our biomarkers in some of these disorders, is very important. And uh, also for clinical trials and drug development, that's why we think some clinical trials fail, because you are... Um, uh, giving a drug that uh, to a heterogeneous population doesn't work in everybody and the signal from the people in which it works gets drawn by the signal uh, in the people in which it doesn't work. So stratifying from the beginning by subtypes and identifying which population best responds and then using that for subsequent studies and as a, using that a population to give the drug to is uh, sort of the way of the future and the rational way forward. And it's being done in cancer already all the time, right? So people get stratified by their molecular markers and get uh, drugs based on that. Uh, it's not given to everybody with breast cancer, for example, and so on. Yes, exactly. But uh, when we are talking about the VG VGF, is totally different because we can think about hormone, but in another case, that's inflammation. However, thank you so much for your answer. I'm passing the mic to the next person. Okay. <clears throat> um, hello, doctor. I just wanted to ask you uh, about measuring treatment progress with uh, using these biomarkers. So, um, as an example, there's something called the Adverse Childhood Experience Score, right? If you get a score above a certain amount, your, the odds of your mortality is significantly greater than people who don't have that background. Um, however, there are mitigations and treatments that do help ameliorate some of these symptoms but it's it's very difficult to track what it's changing and how it actually affects the patient at an individual level right like what is the what how what is the timeline for this patient's recovery um to what degree have they recovered um so what i'm asking is can you use these biomarkers to track the patient's progress yeah that's the goal so um 
right now uh, that now that they are available and that uh, physicians have started to use that, we can sort of look at, uh, yeah, you know, uh, follow-up studies, uh, clinical utility studies, where you see how the use of the biomarkers not only in, informs practice for the doctor, but improves the patients and so on. Uh, I, I, you know, there's not a lot of doubt in my mind that they can be used to track that in a more objective way that eliminates biases and subjectivity. People get taken more seriously when they report something, when you have the corroborative lab information supporting it. Um, and um, the app as well, you know, documenting things daily, how you feel, how you think, the life events uh, in a quantitative way that's visible to the doctor uh, when you come to appointments is also very important as opposed to sort of just a global subjective impression or recall of how things were. And there are a lot of measures that we've put in the app that have to do with um, quality of life, life satisfaction, uh, a lot of things that can be used in terms of tracking how well somebody's doing and uh, how um, you know successful the treatment is. Um, so I, I think we're out of time. I, it was really great to be with you guys. I always like to sort of, <clears throat> I hope there were young people in the audience because I think uh, it's very important for them to learn about this, be involved in this, get sort of, uh, connected to the magic and the challenges of doing science so that they can carry forward the torch. When, yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exactly why we're doing this. We got actually feedback on this year that some people went back to school because they were kind of motivated to go more into science. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for being here, for sharing thank, this. Thank you, and, Katharina. And people yeah. can Google uh, our lab. Uh, our company can uh, send me emails if you have any additional questions. Okay? Wonderful. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much. Have a nice day. Thank you. All Bye. right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, and thank you everyone for coming. Um, if you have more questions, as, uh, as um, Professor Nicolescu said, um, reach out to us, write an email, and um, we will be, you know, doing our best to answering questions uh, further on. And um, yeah, spread the word. I think this is a very important technology development for mental health. And uh, yeah, I hope I hear you all uh, tomorrow again. If you are interested, we um, have um, actually two events, uh, one by Dr. Kirkland. He will be uh, presenting his uh, work. Um, it's more neuroscience technology development of bioluminescence uh, for the imaging of the brain. And we'll explain why that is important and uh, great technology. And then Rafay, uh, he will talk about the potential of using OpenAI on Microsoft Power Platform, and he will guide people through the exact steps how to do it. I think education for free in that regard is important for people, especially around the world where people don't have access to higher education. So we'll keep recording these rooms, feel free to join, and then we'll spread this around the world, hopefully. Okay, so thank you so much for coming. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll close the room now. In three, two, one, bye everyone, thank you.